we're on? Okay, excellent. Thanks for that, Rob. All right, so there's a risk here of preaching from Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26, because this passage is so familiar to all of us, isn't it? Especially verses 22 to 23, right? Everybody's going to focus immediately on the fruit of the Holy Spirit there, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with that. You might even have a song to sing to that, but I'm not going to sing that for you now. And the tune might be in your mind already as you're going through this passage, right? But this passage on the fruit of the Holy Spirit is actually being disclosed to us here in a passage on the need of the human condition to be radically transformed. That the fruit of the Spirit comes in precisely because what we need is not a little improvement from good people to become better people. What we need here is a radical transformation, a transformation from the inside out, a transformation from being in the flesh, Paul says, to being in the Holy Spirit. That becoming a Christian, therefore, is not about becoming better people, but about being completely changed from those in the flesh and now those in the Spirit. And we need to have an account of that change, an account for the human condition and that need, if we're going to appreciate what's going on here about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So there are three things I want to point out from this passage today. Again, we're going to be going through this passage pretty closely. First, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Second, how the Spirit works. And third, to whom the Spirit points. So first, why do we need the Holy Spirit? Look at the first two verses here closely with me. It says here, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Why do we need the Spirit? Well, Paul says here we need the Spirit because we are in the flesh. Now, we got to be careful. Because flesh used in other contexts means something different from what Paul is meaning here in this passage. Flesh, for instance, in other passages, let's say in the Gospel of John, refers to merely our human embodiment, to us being created as embodied people, and so therefore the flesh in that context is good. We're made with bodies, and it is good for us to be made in bodies. God delights in our embodiment, so much so that God didn't see it as below himself to take up the body, to take up the flesh. In John 1.14, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So for John, flesh doesn't mean what Paul means here. Paul means something specific about flesh. Flesh in Paul refers specifically to our sinfulness, to the fact that we have a sinful nature. In fact, some translations just say that this is Paul talking about our corruption, our sinfulness of the flesh, such that we are not, uh, we, we do not sin and then therefore we become sinners, but rather we're sinners and therefore we sin. We find it easier to sin. We find our flesh enticed to sin. We find it easier to commit the things that we know we're not supposed to do. And even though we can acknowledge that there are good things we need to do, we end up avoiding them. And there's a kind of gravitational pull to us such that we commit to things that we know are evil, that we know are not good, that we know that we ought not to do. Right, St. Augustine, I think you know this experientially, and Augustine talked about this experientially. He said that when he was a teenager and he grew up, he would walk past this pear tree, and he said that I wasn't even hungry, and I don't even like pears, but I felt compelled to steal from the pear tree. Why? Because I saw a sign that told me that I can't have the pears. Something awoken in him to want to take the pear the moment he saw that he's not supposed to do it, right? 
And I think we know that about ourselves too. We find ourselves being enticed to it, and, and not just for teenagers, but also for little children, right? Uh, my little daughter, Kira, is about 19 months year old right now, and my wife follows this app that talks about her tracking and her details and the way in which she's progressing from one stage to the other. And apparently right now, her phase of life is what the app calls testing boundaries. And I think that's a euphemism. That's an understatement. She isn't testing boundaries. She's dancing on the boundaries. She's having way too much fun because she would get bored of the toys that she's supposed to play with very quickly. And in the moment she sees a pair of shiny scissors, she extends her hand and is saying, no, don't do it, Kira. She smiles almost maliciously. And she would just slowly inch toward the thing and I was like, what's up with that? I knew that this was happening to other toddlers, but Kira, I thought you were going to be an exception. <laughs> I never taught you this. And she did this. And, and constantly, I think we feel ourselves like that too, don't we? We find ourselves gravitating toward these things we know we're not supposed to do. And we find ourselves avoiding the things that we know are actually good for us, right? And so this is our fleshliness here, Paul is saying, right? And immediately, you're already thinking to yourself, all the obvious fleshly things that even Paul is about to list here in verse 19, things like drunkenness, sexual immorality, impurity, right? Things that are obviously therefore physical and therefore you automatically assume are fleshly. But notice, Paul isn't just talking about those obviously physical fleshly things. Look at verses 19 to 21. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. What's up with that? We'll talk about that. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Notice it's not just about the obvious fleshly things or physical things like drunkenness and so on, but it's also habits of the heart, things that are more subtle, things that are a little bit less difficult to detect, like Fits of anger, envy, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, things like these, right? So how do we understand all these things? What, what binds together things that are obviously fleshly, like sexual immorality, and things like envy, dissensions, rivalries, right? What, what is the organizing principle, if you will, of all of these acts of sin? And I think the clue here is the parallel between verses 16 and verses 18, Look at verse 16 and 18 with me. It says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And notice the parallel. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, paralleling one another. And then the desires of the flesh and under the law, paralleling one another. So we got to ask the question. What do we mean when we say that gratifying the desires of the flesh is paralleling being under the law. What's the relationship between those two realities, right? And again, we've got to be careful. Under the law in Paul is a technical term. Under the law here doesn't refer to the content of the law, because as Paul says elsewhere, like in Romans chapter 7, the content of the law is good. The content of the law reveals the character of God, the holiness of God, and Christians, we ought to obey them. We ought to because it pleases God that we obey them. And so the content of the law is not having in view here by the term under the law, nor is it therefore obedience to the law. Again, it's good for us to obey the law. 
Under the law, therefore, is technical, specific. It just refers to us being under the condemnation of the law, under what we call the curse of the law. And so the curse of the law here is the sense that Paul is referring to of us feeling naked and ashamed ever since the fall. Adam and Eve fell, they resisted God, and immediately they knew they were naked and they were ashamed and they ran away from God, and that's been the human condition ever since. And every single one of us here feels the sense that there's something wrong about us, that there's a fallen condition, that there's an emptiness deep inside, and we feel naked and ashamed, and we feel, in fact, condemned, and we know that we need to cover ourselves up, that without this covering, we are nothing and we're no one, and we feel the fear that we may never be loved. And here's what I think is going on, and and Tim Keller really helped me see this, Keller argues here that being under the law therefore means that because we feel condemned, because we feel that there's something wrong with us, we're going to run to other things outside of God to cover ourselves up, which is, by the way, idolatry. To replace God with other things, to make good things ultimate, as Rob, Pastor Rob always says, right? And idolatry in the form of gratifying the law and under the law here and gratifying the flesh means that instead of running away to God to cover up our nakedness, we run to other things to make ourselves feel better about ourselves to make ourselves feel like I'm, I'm right again, I'm whole again, I'm, I'm a man again, I'm, 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 I'm vindicated again, right? And so here's what's going on. Perhaps, therefore, because we feel like we're under the law, we feel like there's something wrong with us, we run to sexual immorality because we're saying to ourselves, if only I could have as many sexual partners as possible, then I'll feel like I'm right again, then I'll feel like I'm a man again. Or maybe, and again, this is the more subtle part, because we feel like we're not all right, we run to our careers and we say to ourselves, once I have the perfect career, I'm advancing in my job, then I'll feel like I'm all right, I'll prove myself to the world that I'm right with myself. And so when that happens, when someone else in your company advances more quickly than you, is recognized better than you, you can't celebrate that person. You can't be happy for that person, why? because now they're seen as a threat to you. There's a rivalry that starts, there's a dissension that starts, and now you're seeing to yourself, okay, that is my competition, not a friend that I can celebrate. And in fact, you start to envy that person. He's got the career that I wish I had, and so I'm gonna destroy it. I'm gonna go ahead of him, right? Or maybe even more subtle. You say to yourself, I'm gonna need to make myself feel right again in front of other people by having the perfect family. And so when our children go wayward or they disobey, especially in public places when you're able to be seen, you're not just going to discipline your children, you throw a fit of rage because your sense of self is being compromised. Or even still, perhaps you feel that you need to be vindicated again by having exactly the right political opinions. And then suddenly, you can't have a civil conversation with somebody on the other side who disagrees with you because your sense of self is being compromised. You're so insecure about it. If you're wrong, then I thought that I was righteous because I had this opinion, right? And so there's something about us being condemned that we run to things outside of God to cover ourselves up, and we know that those things don't actually fill us up. We know that those things only make us worse, in fact. And so Paul, in verse 21, says, I warn you, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are sharp words. 
And immediately, if you're here and you're questioning Christianity, you might not be a Christian yet, you're thinking to yourself, ha, there it is. You Christians are so judgmental. This is so bigoted. This is so intolerant. You're always talking about, okay, who's not going to be in the kingdom of God and who is going to be in the kingdom of God? Who's righteous and who's good and who's evil, right? You're drawing lines all the time. Why can't we just, as somebody said to me a couple months ago, just accept everyone? Let's not draw lines. Let's accept everyone. Let's be tolerant. Let's just love everybody indiscriminately, okay? Uh, first of all, I think that's impossible. Why? Because you yourself just drew a line when you did that. You've drawn a line between those who do, who do draw lines and those who don't draw lines. In fact, you've drawn a line so much that you've made yourself to be the good person, and now Christians, you're not accepting, are you? You just said accept everybody, but you're not accepting Christians because you just said they're intolerant and bigoted. Oh, and by the way, that means you don't accept Orthodox Jews either. You don't accept Orthodox Muslims either. And you don't accept Orthodox Confucianists either. You don't accept really quite a whole swath of people. And in fact, you're drawing lines that's quite parochial. You're drawing a line that's not only incoherent, but you're drawing a line from a 21st century, post-Enlightenment, Western American perspective that is unshared by the global world. And Christianity does draw a line, but it is God's line. And this line has been heralded by the Christian faith for thousands of years globally. So the question is not whether you're going to draw a line. The question is, from what sources will you draw that line? How will you draw that line? Right? And here's the good news. When God draws a line, it's not between the good people versus the bad people, as we saw. It's between everyone against God. Everyone is in the flesh. Everyone is against God. And so we're all in the same boat in common human solidarity. We have no hope apart from the righteousness that Christ offers. It's interesting to me that those who say, Gray, isn't this really judgmental? Isn't this really, really bigoted? Why don't you talk about, you know, what about, what about the good atheist? Surely God's going to accept that person. What about the good Muslim or the good Buddhist or the good Hindu? And you're not only smuggling the doctrine that you're saved by works when you do that, by the way, but you're also saying, well, what about, is there no hope for the bad atheist? How come nobody tells me, what about the bad atheist or the bad Muslim or the bad Hindu, right? No, here the Christian faith is saying there's hope for you because you know and recognize that you're bad, and this is why we need the Holy Spirit, friends. Everybody is in need of God. You and I are in need of God. And therefore, we need the Spirit of God. We need the fruit of the Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about here. So this brings me to my second point, okay? How does the Spirit work? How does the Spirit become our hope, given that we're all in the flesh? Well, given that we're on the flesh, the Spirit works by providing us the fruit of the Spirit here in verse 22. And notice here that it is a fruit of the Spirit and not from our selves, right? So that the fruit of the Spirit here comes, in other words, how does the Spirit work? From the outside in and then the inside out. Outside in, inside out. You got to get this dynamic of the Spirit if you're wanting to appreciate what he's doing here. Outside in, so the Spirit comes in from the outside, and therefore there's a real way in which this is not in your control. John 3 talks about the Spirit like a wind, You can probably see its effects, but you don't know where it's going or from where it's come. But you can see when the Spirit is working, the Spirit is transforming us from the outside and then gives us desires and illumines our eyes and our hearts so that suddenly 
the things of God looks attractive to us. Suddenly, Jesus looks beautiful to us. Suddenly, when you're reading the Bible, you're radically interested in the Bible. And you're saying to yourself, I can't believe I haven't been reading this. And you're, you're looking at sermons and you're like, this is amazing. I gotta follow this stuff, right? This, this is beautiful. What accounts for that? Why is it that when Pastor Rob is preaching sometimes, right, and you're, you're crying, you're like writing notes, you're like, oh my goodness, this is so moving. And then you look to your friend who you brought to church this Sunday and they're on TikTok. And you're like, this is, what's wrong with you? This is beautiful, right? I, I became a Christian in a Christian school, an international Christian school back in Jakarta. And I was converted in this Pentecostal church and I remember coming to the school and I've been in that Christian school for about seven, eight years. And I remember being incredibly frustrated at all my teachers and all my friends who claimed to be Christian because I told them, Hey, I've been going to school for seven, eight years. How come you never told me the gospel? I finally heard it somewhere else. Like, what's up with that, right? Why haven't I not heard it yet? And my poor teachers and friends, they were so patient with me. And they were like, great, no, really listen. And there it was. Every chapel, every morning devotions, every conversation, there was a gospel. They were telling this to me every day for about the last seven or eight years. And then I suddenly asked myself, how come I was around and I never had the ears to hear and I never had the eyes to see? What was different? Why, why didn't I see this until now? And if you don't get this, friends, if you don't understand that the Spirit works on the outside in and the inside out and transforms you, because by the way, Jesus said, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, only a good tree could. You need the Spirit to transform you. If you're not going to get this outside in, inside out dynamic, you're going to start to look down on other people who don't have the fruit of the Spirit because you're going to say to them, right, if only you're just as attentive as me, you'll bear the fruit. If only you were just as, as, as humble as me, if only you listened better to this sermon as I do, you're going you're gonna to become more like me, right? You're going to become more uh, engrossed by the fruit of the Spirit, right? And that's exactly how it was when I first became a Christian, by the way. I remember I was reading a book that was formative for me from R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. Great book, by the way, a classic. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. And I remember I was what they call a cage-stage Calvinist back then. And I would, I would literally get this book and I would photocopy it, a lot of it for my friends. And yes, I know that wasn't kosher, but I was far away in Jakarta. And... Uh, I gave it to my friends left and right, right? I was like, here, read this. If only you read this, you're going to see exactly what I see. And some of them just kind of ignored it. Others of them, you know, were not interested. Maybe they read 30 pages and then they, they put it aside. And I remember I was being so frustrated at them. I'm like, what's wrong with you? This is a great book, right? And what was I doing there? I was good. Perhaps I could see right and wrong now. I see the beauty of Jesus Christ. But I was not gentle. I was not kind. I was not patient. And here's the thing about the fruit of the Spirit, friends. Look at verse 22 again. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice, fruit is singular. Like it is in the Greek. It's actually a singular word there. So it's not that the fruit sometimes makes you kind, other times makes you good, other times makes you faithful. No, the supernatural work of God is witnessed 
precisely in the fact that all of these qualities that don't usually go together, all these qualities that you might see piecemeal in different people without the Spirit, is actually coming into your life all at once simultaneously. So that you are going to have all these qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all in one go. And that's not how it was, right? And that's what's going on when you're still in the flesh. You're just only going to be able to, to witness to just one of these qualities. You consider, yes, I was kind. Sorry, I was good, but not kind. But maybe you've met somebody who's kind and gentle, but not good. Like indiscriminately kind to everyone but cannot tell the difference between good and evil, and so therefore it's a little bit naive, perhaps, and so when push comes to shove and there really is evil, they're not able to confront it. They lack courage to confront it. They lack the bravery and the spine to confront it. Or maybe you've perhaps thought about somebody, or maybe yourself you felt this way, where you have peace, a lot of peace in your life. There was no love. Why? Because it's a very conditioned and contingent sort of peace. You have peace only to the extent that you're not making yourself vulnerable to deep, committed relationships of love. In fact, you know that if those relationships come, then you might feel threatened. Your peace becomes shaken, right? And you're going to say to yourself, oh, I can't be vulnerable. I'm going to get hurt. And so you have peace, but no love. Or perhaps you've met somebody, you yourself have felt a sort of self-control, but radically no joy like going through a bad diet, training regiment, where you're just like burying all of your emotions away, you're just gonna move on, not even think about it, try to become a, a stoic, a man's man or something like that, and you're just gonna say to yourself, I just need to go through this regiment, and I'll be done with it. And so you're always gloomy. You got self-control, but no joy. And friends, that's, that's, the, that's the question, right? How can you be all these things at once? How can you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit? In other words, how can you be good and not cultivate pride? How can you be good and be gentle and kind and patient and all these other qualities combined? That brings me to my third and final point. Friends, the key to that is to see to whom the Spirit points. The Spirit points us in verse 24, here's the key, to Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, notice, all right? All of its passions and desires are crucified. Why is this, friends? Because when you recognize that you're no longer under the law, not because of your own achievement, not because you tried your best, but because someone else did, then you realize, friends, that your sense of being condemned was lifted, not because of your own righteousness, but because of someone else. And so how dare you be good and look yourself down on other people? How dare you try to become good and therefore say, if only you were like me, right? That's very fleshly, in fact. In fact, you're going to actually see other people as if they're on the same boat as you. And friends, you were rescued from being under the law by someone else who walked the perfect life, who was able to do it better than you in a way that you never could have had, who lived the life you should have lived, who died the death you should have died. And so you were no longer under the law by grace and grace alone. And because of that, you suddenly could become good and gentle and kind and faithful in all these different ways combined. You could become good without cultivating pride. And friends, don't you see that when you take a look at Jesus Christ, he is the one who lived the spirit-filled life? In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
It says that Jesus Christ is himself the life-giving spirit, that Jesus Christ's life is so one with the spirit that in him you see the fruit of the spirit perfectly exemplified. Consider that he was good and kind. Consider his words to the Samaritan woman and the woman caught in adultery in John 4 and John 8, who said to them, I do not condemn you, and go and sin no more. He was good. He saw right and wrong. Go and sin no more, and yet with a certain sense of gentleness, because he knew that he was going to die in their place. Consider Jesus, who was so secured in his father's love that he stayed on the cross utterly in self-control with the peace that he got from his father. And because he was secure in that peace, he was able to remain, and he was able to extend that peace to others who said, and he said, Father, forgive them, for I do not, they do not know what they are doing. And so he endured obedience all the way to the point of death. Didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He endured to the point of death for the joy set before him, namely the church, as the book of Hebrews tells us, right? Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. Jesus Christ lived the spirit-filled life. And so because he did it first as our elder brother, he now extends the same spirit to us so that we can become more and more like him. Friend, the fruit of the spirit is a fruit of the spirit of Jesus Christ so that when you are developing this fruit from the inside out, you're becoming more and more like him. He's the concrete example, representation, and substitute for you. So let me close with this, right? In verses 26 and 16, this passage tells us, live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And also I say, Paul says again in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, this passage is so familiar to us that we miss the significance of that because we used to walk by the Spirit. Adam did before the fall. There was no barrier between him and God. There was no distance between him and God. And so we walked by the Spirit. And now we no longer do. And now Jesus walked by the Spirit so that we can. The fact that Christians, you and I, could walk by the Spirit now means that God could be with us and sin is no longer a barrier between us and God. And friends, that means you are no longer totally depraved if you're a Christian. I know we're a Reformed Presbyterian church. We, I, we probably understand the idea of total depravity, that before we were new creatures, we could not follow God. But now that you are a Christian, friends, you're no longer totally depraved, which means you don't have to give in to that sin. You can walk in holiness. You can produce good works. You can bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so that's why Paul ends this passage with exactly that command. Keep in step with the Spirit don't lose the significance of this, that now you're no longer at a distance from God. Through Christ Jesus, you are now one with him, so bear that fruit. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that though we were far away from you, you have crossed that chasm, the chasm of sin, and you took on flesh, Lord God, so that we and our flesh could be crucified with you. Father, we pray, Lord God, that as we now consider Jesus Christ as raised, Jesus Christ as ascended, who's interceding for us in the right hand, that we would draw from him so that we might live the life that we should live now by the power of his death, resurrection, and ascension.
and the Spirit of God that therefore he sends to us because of that death. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.